This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Showing Charity Towards All. In the first half, Claiborne Carson shares his address, Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos or Community? Then in the second half, James D. MacArthur speaks on charity in the community of saints. This is a wonderful time to be talking about Martin Luther King. We're just past uh, the King holiday. We're approaching 50 years uh, since his death. I've taken as a theme this year, where do we go from here? And it's taken from the last book that he wrote. And I think of that book as being very instructive because he wrote the book in 1967 after the passage of major civil rights legislation. So the book is really a guide to where do we go in that era after the civil rights revolution of the 1960s? What is left undone? I think that what he was trying to tell us is that the job was not complete. Something important did happen in the 20 years after World War II. And it happened around the world. You had a rights revolution that affected the majority of humanity. At the beginning of that period, most people on earth were not citizens of the place where they happened to live. They were subjects. They were second-class or third-class citizens, which means not citizens really at all. Most of them could not vote. Most of them were colonized. In the United States, we called it the Jim Crow system. South Africa, apartheid. At the end of that period, for the first time in history, most people were citizens. That's a tremendous accomplishment, equivalent to the accomplishment in the 19th century of ending slavery in most parts of the world. And Martin Luther King is the great symbol of that movement. But it's instructive for us to remember that after that he didn't retire. He didn't say, I've done it. I've achieved my goal. Instead, he set about trying to achieve things that he wrote about in his book, Where Do We Go From Here? And the theme of my remarks is that we haven't answered his question. We haven't decided where to go from that point on. Once we have resolved the question and we spent the rest of the century kind of making sure that everyone got the message that you couldn't be denied citizenship rights because of reasons of racial prejudice or bigotry and all of these other barriers that were preventing people from enjoying their equal rights as citizens. And that kind of occupied the rest of the century. There are a lot of movements to expand the reach of citizenship rights. But at the end of that process, we're living in a world which I don't think very many of us would describe as a just and peaceful world. So perhaps gaining civil rights has made us complacent about something else, which I would call human rights. 
that because we are secure in our citizenship rights, we no longer give very much thought to the idea that for many people in the world, human rights have become increasingly important, often because they find that the nation-state, which has the duty of protecting citizenship rights, is often the worst violator of those citizenship rights. And people find, what is the recourse then? So I'd like to spend some time looking at Martin Luther King's life, particularly those last three years after the passage of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Because to me, those are the most interesting period of his life. Those were the most intense period of his life. And you can think of Martin Luther King, as we often do, as a person giving the I Have a Dream speech, maybe the speech at the end of the Selma to Montgomery March. And I would refer to these, as he does at the end of his life in Memphis, as those mountaintop moments. As you'll recall, he gives a wonderful speech. We call it the mountaintop speech. And, and I think that's a misnomer, kind of like the way the I Have a Dream speech is the part that he did not intend to give. It was made up on the spot. Uh, if you look back at his prepared remarks for what he was supposed to say in Washington, he was limited to only five minutes. So he wrote a speech. There's no mention of I Have a Dream in it. All of that was extemporaneous when he decided to go over his time limit because of the response of the crowd. And in the same way, the mountaintop speech. He mentions the mountaintop at the very end. But the speech is actually, and I invite you to go and read it online, it's actually a review of his life. And he begins it by giving a panorama of history, and he speculates about what it would have been like to have lived at all these great periods of, in the ancient world, the Renaissance, you know, other great periods of history. And he asked the question, if God gave him the chance to go and live his life in any of those periods, what would he choose? And he said, even though the present period, the world is all messed up, violence all around. Now, this is, again, in 1968, at the height of the Vietnam War. That seems like that the cry for freedom throughout the world is often not being heard. But he said, in spite of that, if I just had a few years to live, I would choose to come back and live in that 20-year stretch following World War II. And it was because, he said, it's during that time that we face this question of what are we going to do when people throughout the world are saying we want to be free. And that cry could be heard, and he mentioned South Africa, and he mentioned the cry throughout Africa and Asia and many of the places in the world. And he asked the question, how do we respond to that? And his answer was one that allowed us to look 
back at his life, he said he went back through those mountaintop experiences. And there were really only a few. He lived most of his life in the valleys. Certainly the great triumph in Montgomery. And what we find when even at the mountaintop he understands how close he came to failure. If you go back and read about the Montgomery bus boycott, you would find that he didn't have anything to do with starting it. He just happened to be living in the same place that Rosa Parks was living. And Rosa Parks and Montgomery women organized a boycott to protest the treatment they were receiving on Montgomery buses, passed out 50,000 leaflets, got people to stay off the buses on December 5th, 1955. And that afternoon, after the boycott was 99% successful, they have a meeting and decide, oh, we have to have a spokesperson for this movement, especially if it's going to go on for the second day. And Martin Luther King was unexpectedly selected to lead. He had only arrived in Montgomery a, a year before. So there were many other much more experienced leaders, E.D. Nixon, Joanne Robinson, you know, a number of other people who were probably much more equipped and qualified to lead a bus boycott than Martin Luther King. But there was something that they liked about this new, young, 26-year-old, very articulate, just received his doctorate. And they said, why don't we select him? And I think perhaps some of them just recognized that whoever led this boycott was probably going to end up in jail. <laughs> and it was easier, they figured, for this young guy who had just uh, had his first child and Martin Luther King was actually somewhat reluctant. He had been asked to lead the local chapter of the NAACP, and he declined. He said, you know, look, I've got a baby coming. And, uh, you know, he wasn't prepared yet. But there was something about that moment that said, yes, I need to accept this invitation. And that night, he gives a great speech, makes it up in about 10 or 15 minutes, and again, I invite you to go and, and read it. Because what he does is something that he does on his mountaintop moments. Is he takes this bus boycott, which is at that point not even about desegregation of buses. It's about better treatment under segregation. That's all they're asking for. And he gives a speech in which he says, if we are wrong, the Constitution of the United States is wrong. If we are wrong, the Sermon on the Mount is wrong. If we are wrong, the Declaration of Independence is wrong. In other words, he was taking that modest goal of the movement and linking it to something much larger than that. These transcendent values about justice and equality. And he said at the end of the speech, when the history books of the future are written, they'll have to say there lived a great people right here in Montgomery who had the courage to stand up for their rights. Now, that's not audacious speech. You have a one-day boycott that's not even in the newspapers outside of Montgomery. 
And he's saying when the history books of the future are written, they'll write about Montgomery. And go to any U.S. history book today. You will find some mention of the Montgomery bus boycott. So he was right about that. But after that, he went through a period which I would call the Long Valley. It lasted almost six years, where he was not able to move forward as a leader. He gave lots of speeches, became famous. He was on the covers of news magazines, became the best-known black leader, but he was always finding himself behind the curve in terms of the movement. When the students sit in in 1960, he's caught by surprise. When the Freedom Rides happen, they ask him to join the Freedom Rides. He declines. Even after the Montgomery bus boycott, he says, people will be expecting me to pull rabbits out of the hat for the rest of my life. There's another document I ran across where he says, you know, what is it like to reach a peak of your life at the age of 27? Where do you have to go? And by the time of the Albany protests in 1962, he was rather depressed about it because he goes to jail, gets called into this movement in Albany, Georgia, and he's jailed along with hundreds of other people. And he comes out of it with nothing to show for it. No concessions, no gains. Reporters come up to him, Dr. King, have you failed? And he really had to face the reality that maybe he had reached his peak at 27 and there was nothing more to be done. And then his friend Fred Shuttlesworth said, come to Birmingham. You know, he fails in Albany and Shuttlesworth is telling him, come to Birmingham. That's like saying you failed in this small town. Now I want you to come to almost the capital of segregation you were outmaneuvered by this small-town policeman in Albany. Now I want you to face up to Bull Connor, who had a reputation even then. And Birmingham had this reputation of being bombing him. Black people who stood up to segregation found that their homes would be bombed, their churches would be bombed. And he makes that crucial decision to come to Birmingham. And almost like what happens in Montgomery. You know, the Montgomery movement succeeded because of forces beyond his control. The Supreme Court intervened and integrated the buses. And it was just at the time he was about ready to give up on the bus boycott. Well, in Birmingham, he goes to jail again. And that's where he writes Letter from Birmingham Jail one of the most wonderful documents in American history, a wonderful justification of civil disobedience. But it didn't win. Rarely does an essay win a struggle. Most people had never even read it until years later when it became famous and probably assigned in classrooms. So he goes to jail, comes out of jail, no victory. 
Is this going to be a repeat of what happened in Albany? But then something, again, kind of miraculous happens. It's called the Children's Crusade. The organizers who had worked with him were saying, you know, we've run out of people who are adults. Hundreds of them have gone to jail. The number of people who are willing to stay in jail for a long period of time, we're just out of them. But we've got these high school students. They're eager to take part in the movement. And he had to make that difficult decision of what to do. If one of these young people were injured, perhaps killed, he would have to answer for it. And he mulls over the situation and finally decides that, in a sense, they're already in jail within the segregation system. And this is a chance for them to do something to better their future. And in early May of 1963, one of the most remarkable movements in American history happens. Thousands of students flood into the streets, leave school, often without telling their parents. In fact, probably most of them without telling their parents. And they come to 16th Street Baptist Church. Smiles on their faces. You can see the films of them singing freedom songs. And what were they there for to go to jail with smiles on their faces? And they marched from 16th Street into the downtown area. Bull Connor is waiting with his police, rests as many as they can. Very quickly, the jails fill up. The second day, more of the same. More and more students. And that's when you see the pictures of the police dogs and the fire hoses. You ever wondered why they used them? There was no other place to put thousands of students. So this was a way of trying to deter them from even going into the downtown area, trying to frighten them off with police dogs, fire hoses. And, of course, the pictures of those changed the momentum, forced the Kennedy administration to intervene, and to begin preparing what became the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And that's what led King to become the king that we recognize today. Because think about it, if he had failed in Birmingham, he wouldn't have been invited to give the I Have a Dream speech. There might not have been a march on Washington. He certainly would not have received the Nobel Peace Prize the following year. He would have been a leader who reached his peak at 27 and never really realized his potential after that. But instead, he's given the prominent role of concluding the march, and he has that mountaintop experience, which, like in Montgomery, doesn't last long. Because as you remember, a few weeks later, 16th Street Baptist Church is bombed and four little girls are murdered there. So again, where does he go from there? The next big event is that Selma to Montgomery march. I hope some of you have seen the, the Selma film. See how tremendous that event. I've taken my students there. It's wonderful to have them cross the Edmund Pettus Bridge, and I think that that's an experience that 
every young person in this room should have of go to Selma. Because symbolically what happened there, it was a march literally to freedom. On Bloody Sunday in March of 1965, 600 people marched across the bridge. They were met on the other side by police and sheriff's posse, brutally beaten at the foot of the bridge. They retreat back. Martin Luther King, who was not there because he was in Atlanta giving his Sunday sermon, rushes back. And as often in his life, he's caught unexpectedly in this movement. And he makes the decision eventually to lead the marchers from Selma to Montgomery and arrive on the steps of the Capitol. And by this time, Lyndon Johnson has decided to introduce voting rights legislation, which is passed a few months later. And that becomes the last high point in King's career. When you go back and look at his Nobel Peace Prize speech, you will see that by that time he made clear that his agenda had broadened. He might have just retired. He might have just said, you know, look, I've contributed enough. I've been threatened. By that time he had been stabbed within an inch of his life. His life had been threatened probably more times than you can count. He had been beaten up in public. But rather than doing that, he said that my goal for the rest of my life is to deal with what I consider the three main problems of the world. One of them is familiar, racial oppression. It's still a fact of life that people are held back because of race and the legacy of race. Now, even after the passage of civil rights legislation, both King and Lyndon Johnson recognized that if you start at equal points, simply taking down the barrier doesn't mean that you're going to get to the finish line at the same time. That the legacy is going to weigh on every generation from that point on unless something special was done. King called for a Bill of Rights for the Disadvantaged. And he called for an all-out worldwide war on poverty. And that became the central focus of his life leading to the Poor People's Campaign, which brought him to Memphis. And from that point on, his goal in life was to try to mobilize people around the issue, not of civil rights, but human rights, of understanding that civil rights gains were really intended to be the kind of rights that you enjoy as a citizen of a country. But outside those rights are the rights that we refer to in the Declaration of Independence in the United States. If you recall, and I think all Americans should recall Jefferson's words, at that point there were no citizens of the United States. So of course he framed the Declaration of Independence in terms of the rights of all people as people, birthrights. And that has been 
a means by which black leaders from that point to the present and people of all races have used as a means of pointing out the hypocrisy of the United States. Because we've always had a very limited notion of who is entitled to citizenship and who is entitled to the full benefits of citizenship. Those of you who know anything about American history would realize that citizenship was initially limited to white men with property. No one else could vote. It's been a long struggle to expand that to where it is today. And that struggle was about bringing citizenship rights closer to that ideal that Jefferson hinted at in the Declaration of Independence of human rights. All men are entitled to life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. And that simply provides a framework. It's not a delineation of what are human rights. So what I would suggest is that when we go back and look at Martin Luther King's question, where do we go from here, that it's very possible that gaining citizenship rights has made us very complacent about human rights. We are secure and very happy in our rights as Americans in terms of citizenship, because those are the rights that we expect our government to protect. But there's a realm of rights which are constantly being evolved in the world, a realm of rights that belong to people as people. And it's those rights that serve as a standard for citizenship rights. As we expand, what is our ideal for what rights should be? When we look at Martin Luther King, it's very clear that his ideal for what rights should be is not grounded on a piece of paper, it's not grounded on a constitution, it's not grounded on law itself. It's grounded on Christianity, the Judeo-Christian tradition, the prophetic tradition, the notion of justice. And during the last part of his life, he began to see that that needed to be the guidepost in the struggles that would follow the civil rights gains of the 1960s. So when we look at Where Do We Go From Here, that wonderful book, what we see is King in that valley of doubt. Can I really accomplish this in my lifetime? He launches the Poor People's Campaign, and that's what brings him to Memphis. And he goes there because of a strike of sanitation workers. The last decision he makes in his life is to come to Memphis to speak to these sanitation workers who have gone on strike for a decent wage, the kinds of things that were not guaranteed by the Civil Rights Acts of 64 and 65. And he finds that this is a truly uphill struggle. And you can imagine, even today, if a leader said, I'm going to 
bring people to Washington for an Occupy movement. And that Occupy movement is we're going to occupy the National Mall until something is done about the issue of poverty. You can kind of see why Martin Luther King was not the most popular leader at the end of his life. He was being attacked by many of the people who had once supported him. He said, why are you doing this? And at that point, I find that my admiration for him increases because I see him, particularly when he gives sermons during that period, talking about the need for courage, to stand up for what he believes is right and just, even when he's being criticized. So I'd like to end with a, a sermon that he gives just a few months before his assassination. And I think it conveys a part of Martin Luther King that might not be as familiar to you. Keep in mind that at this point, he's not at all sure that he'll live long enough to see the promised land that he talks about in his last speech. But he's speaking to a congregation of people who have known him even as a child at Ebenezer Church in Atlanta. And imagine yourself in that church on a Sunday morning. And Martin Luther King comes in and he's rather tired. He's exhausted by the struggle. He's getting criticized even from black people who are wondering why did this civil rights leader move off into these other areas like criticizing the war, taking on the issue of poverty. And he speaks from the heart to his congregation. I say to you this morning that if you've never found something so dear and so precious to you that you will die for it, then you aren't fit to live. You may be 38 years old, as I happen to be, and one day some great opportunity stands before you and calls upon you to stand up for some great principle, some great issue, some great cause. And you refuse to do it because you are afraid. You refuse to do it because you want to live longer. You're afraid that you will lose your job, or you're afraid that you will be criticized, or that you will lose your popularity, or you're afraid that someone will stab you or shoot at you or bomb your house. So you refuse to take the stand. Well, you may go on and live until you're 90, but you are just as dead at 38 as you would be at 90. And the cessation of breathing in your life is but the belated announcement of an earlier death of the Spirit. You died when you refused to stand up for right. You died when you refused to stand up for truth. You died when you refused to stand up for justice. Don't ever think that you go by yourself. Go on to jail if necessary, but you never go alone. Take a stand for that which is right, and the world may misunderstand you or criticize you, but you never go alone. For somewhere I read that one with God is a majority. God has a way of transforming a minority into a majority. Walk with him this morning and believe in him and do what is right, and he will be with you even until the consummation of the ages. Thank you very much. 
You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is showing charity towards all. We've just heard from Claiborne Carson. After the break, we'll return with James D. MacArthur for Charity in the Community of Saints. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is showing charity towards all. Next is James D. MacArthur, a clinical professor and psychologist with the Counseling and Development Center at BYU, titled Charity in the Community of Saints. I recall participating in a workshop on campus about a year ago in which the invited presenter was attempting to establish the idea that all things are better understood if thoroughly studied and defined in detail. I raised my hand and said, Some things are ruined by trying to explain them. I feel that way a little bit today about my topic, Charity in the Community of Saints. I know that it can be sensed. I have sensed it and felt it, and I've seen it many times, but whenever I try to say it, somehow it falls a bit short. Nevertheless, I invite you to read between the lines a bit and see if you, like me, can sense and know it in another language which is recognized as familiar by our eternal selves. A beautiful description of the love of God is given to us by Father Lehi. He writes, And it came to pass that I beheld a tree whose fruit was desirable to make one happy. And it came to pass that I did go forth and partake of the fruit thereof, and I beheld that it was most sweet above all that I had ever before tasted. And as I partook of the fruit thereof, it filled my soul with exceedingly great joy, wherefore I began to be desirous that my family should partake of it also, for I knew that it was desirable above all other fruit. The fruit which was so delicious to Lehi that he so deeply desired to share with his family was the love of God which he had personally felt. Once we experience its embracing power, we have an insatiable desire to experience it again and again. We want it always to be with us. Though some choose to deny it, most will make any sacrifice to gain it. I will never forget the shock I felt the first time I became aware of someone in our own community who actually had called time and temperature to experience the comfort of hearing a human voice. They would often call in the middle of the night to relieve their loneliness. I thought, how can this be in this community? Several years ago, while serving as bishop of my ward, I pulled out of the driveway very early on a dark, cold winter morning to go to the chapel. As I started down the street, I saw a familiar light on in the living room of an elderly neighbor. I knew he was suffering, as he did night after night, day after day, from a serious illness that caused excruciating pain in his aging legs, only receiving a small amount of relief by walking back and forth in his living room whenever the pain was unbearable. While most of us slept, he walked. I wondered how he faced it, and I wondered how his wife faced it. I knew of several others who suffered likewise from illnesses and despair that defied sleep, I drove through the ward that morning to see if other lights were on or if they had somehow found a few extra moments of peace in sleep. I knew they needed the loving embrace of the saints, and I wondered if they felt it. Dinah Maria Mulock Crake, a 19th century English 
novelist once captured this great human desire as she wrote the following, quote, Oh, the comfort, the inexpressible comfort of feeling safe with a person, having neither to weigh thoughts nor measure words, but pouring them all right out, just as they are, chaff and grain together, certain that a faithful hand will take and sift them, keep what is worth keeping, and then with the breath of kindness, blow the rest away. This exists to its greatest degree in a community of saints who know the Savior, not casually, but intimately. It exists most completely in those who have studied his life and know him deeply. Too many of us know him by definition only. We know of him, but perhaps we do not sufficiently know him. Frederick G. Farrar wrote of Christ the following, quote, All that the human frame can tolerate of suffering was to be heaped upon his shrinking body. Every misery that cruel and crushing insult can inflict was to weigh heavily on his soul. And in this torment of body and agony of soul, even the high and radiant serenity of his divine spirit was to suffer a short but terrible eclipse. Pain in its acutest sting, shame in its most overwhelming brutality, all the burden of sin, this was what he must now face in all its most inexplicable accumulation, close quote. How could such be born without the purest love for his brothers and sisters being at the root of his sacrifice? Elder Bruce McConkie in The Mortal Messiah writes of Jesus' suffering in Gethsemane, quote, What has been preserved for us is only a sliver from a great tree, only a few sentences of what was said, only a brief glimpse of what transpired. There is no language known to mortals that can tell what agony and suffering was his while in the garden, close quote. As King Benjamin wrote, For behold, blood cometh from every poor, so great shall be his anguish for the wickedness and abominations of his people, close quote. I really cannot fathom the love which served as his motivation. But the ultimate effect of the saving principles of the gospel of Jesus Christ is to change the heart. When this occurs, and it is usually a process which occurs through a series of significant spiritual experiences, we love more deeply, we love more consistently, we love all that is of God more completely, and thereby we love his children and we love his work. But we must seek this change of heart. We must desire it above all else. To do so, we must struggle to give up the chains of the celestial world we live in. Often we must give them up more than once, because they have a cunning way of returning to us even when we feel we are finally free of them. I believe this means that we give up pride, winning, victory over others, competition with each other, not victory and competition in the sense of personal enjoyment on a field of play or in the driveway, but the destructive winning and dominating of brothers and sisters in which we seek to be above them. To free ourselves of these things, a stark change must finally occur. It takes a lot of hard work. It truly requires a fundamental change of heart. Again, Frederick G. Farrar, in a sermon preached in Trinity Church in Boston, November 1st, 1885, exclaimed, quote, Self is the all but universal idol. Selfishness is for millions the sole law of existence. Men jostle each other and struggle for press and triumph savagely on fallen rivals and show the poor spectacle of that perverted life which lives and does only for itself. Let us set our affection on things above, not on things of the earth. For you see, a life spent in brushing clothes and washing crockery and sweeping floors, a life which the proud of the earth would have treated as the dust under their feet, a life spent at the clerk's desk 
a life spent in the narrow shop, a life spent in the laborer's hut, a life of poverty, a life of struggle, a life of obscurity and unsuccess may yet be a life so ennobled by God's loving mercy that for the sake of it, a king might gladly yield his crown. Close quote. C.S. Lewis said it powerfully and beautifully. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires you think innocent as well as the ones you think wicked, the whole outfit. I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. My own will shall become yours. He will give us himself. Then what happens? What do we hope to see? I would like to share with you a beautiful human experience that greatly helped me to answer that question. Sharon Tennyson, a registered nurse, wrote the following during a 16-hour shift with a 40-year-old patient in very grave condition. Quote, The room was quiet. Curtains pulled to reduce sensory stimulation. The environment is a tense piece if that is possible. A little Basque priest comes in making his usual rounds. He inquires quietly about my patient's condition with real concern. I am touched as he walks to the bed rail, holds his hand palm down about 12 inches over this man's head, and begins to pray silently. Minutes later, he makes a sweeping slow cross over the top part of my patient and quietly fades out of the room. I am aware of tears in my eyes. Why does this touch the heart and soul of me so? This little priest looking to be in his 60s, salt and pepper hair, no taller than five foot three inches, walks around the hospital comforting the grieving, encouraging the sick, and praying for the dying. And here he is today praying over and loving a sleeping man who doesn't even know him or know that he is there. And this is his work in the world. He does it with great dignity and compassion. How many times are there those who are silently holding us in loving thought and prayer when it is completely unknown to us. And my mind slowly comes back from its journey into the timeless possibilities to the bed of this beautiful man. And I take up where the little Basque priest left off and am so touched and humbled by the possibility that we can enter into each other's lives in this silent way. Close quote. After reading this experience, I remembered a very late night when I knelt by the bedside of one of my own children who was having a very hard time with life and prayed fervently for him, as it seemed I could only do so while he slept. I believe the love I felt for him that night was of the same origin as was the love Sharon Tennyson, the little Basque priest, and Lehi felt. It came from heavenly sources. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become as sounding brass and tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself. Is not puffed up. Charity never faileth. I personally do not want victory over anyone who is my brother or sister, which includes all. I want harmony. 
and I want to serve you, to give to you. I want those characteristics of charity in me so that I can give them to you. I have come to believe that the gifts of the Spirit are most available to us when we reach heavenward to obtain them in order to give them away in Christ-like love to our beloved brothers and sisters. The Savior taught us this in a most poignant way. In the life of Christ, we read of the apostles, quote, Their feet must have been covered with dust from their walk along the hot and much frequented road from Bethany to Jerusalem, and under such circumstances they would have been refreshed for the festival by washing their feet after pulling off their sandals. But to wash the feet was the work of slaves. And since no one had offered to perform the kindly office, Jesus himself, in his eternal humility and self-denial, rose from his place at the meal to do the menial service which none of his disciples had offered to do for him. It is probable that in the utterness of his Self-abnegation, he entirely stripped his upper limbs. Then pouring water into the large copper basin with which an oriental house is always provided, he began without a word to wash his disciples' feet and wash them dry with the towel which served as a girdle. Close quote. It has always amazed me that this man of humility, who was the creator of the earth and the savior of mankind, even chose to wash the feet of Judas. The traitor himself, the betrayer of the Lord, had felt the touch of those kind and gentle hands, had seen that sacred head bent over his feet as he washed them, knowing this betraying heart would yet send him to Calvary's hill. The apostles rightfully called him Master and Lord, for so he was, yet he washed their feet. It was a kind and gracious act, and such ought to be the guiding principle in all of our dealings with each other. Humility. It requires that we set ourselves aside for a bit in order to make place for the needs of others. As this remarkable human yet sacred drama came to an end, Jesus taught his apostles a lesson he knew would be regarded for you and me to read and hopefully embrace. Quote, little children, yet a little while I am with you. Whither I go, ye cannot come. So now I say unto you, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Love was now the test and condition of discipleship. Not the conditional love of this celestial world, but the pure, unfeigned, true love exemplified by Christ as being without condition. It was known to be without condition because he offered it even unto Judas, and indeed to all sinners. I've spent the majority of my professional life working with people who have troubled hearts and lives. I've known many who grew up as children in troubled families. They generally did not feel love. They felt alone. As I have worked with so many troubled spirits, I find that they are often painfully lonely. Aloneness is one of the great maladies of our day. Even active Latter-day Saints busily working in the midst of so many others at times report being lonely, feeling an absence of love. We must correct that through hard work, making sacrifices to notice and to reach out to others, to love one another as he commanded us to do. I've always enjoyed the magic of being in touch by Smiley Blanton, M.D. Let me quote just a bit from that. As a psychiatrist, I have good reason to know how often human problems are caused by the simple failure 
of people to make contact with one another. Love is the climate in which all living things flourish, and sometimes a single touch can evoke the atmosphere. A mother ruffles her child's hair lightly, a husband helping his wife on with her coat rests his hand for a moment on her shoulders, and this says, I love you, as clearly as if he had written the words in letters of fire. I have always had a warm feeling for the father of the prodigal son in the Bible parable. When the prodigal son finally came home, the father did not wait at the door with a prim word of welcome and reluctant handshake. He ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. I wish we could remember that. Marta Corwin Rhodes, a concert pianist, was in Warsaw when that city was besieged by the Nazis in World War II. She volunteered to work as a nurse in the hospital caring for the wounded. I quote from what she wrote. Late one night, going through the wards, I noticed a soldier whose face was buried in a pillow. In his agony, he was sobbing and moaning into the pillow so that he would disturb no one. How could I help him? I looked at my hands. If I could transmit vibrations in harmony through the piano, why could I not transmit harmony directly without an instrument? When I took the boy's head in my hands, he grabbed them with such force that I thought his nails would be embedded in my flesh. I prayed that the harmony of the world would come to alleviate his pain. His sobs quieted. Then his hands released their grip and he was asleep. The magic of being in touch. It can express love and ease pain and can give mankind its its humanity." Notice, please, that in all of these instances there is a setting aside of oneself. Though this is crucial in all of our human relationships, I hope we particularly remember it in our families, where lives may be nurtured and spiritually fed in dramatic ways. President David O. McKay once wrote, Homes are made permanent through love. Oh, then let love abound. If you feel that you have not the love of your children, live to get it. Though you neglect some of the cattle, though you fall short in some material matters, study and work and pray to hold your children's love. One of the most beautiful descriptions of the setting aside of oneself, a defining characteristic of charity and the community of saints, is found in the story of Macarius the Hermit. Macarius the Hermit lived in the desert in a little community of solitaries. One day there was brought to him that which in the hot desert is the most tempting and exquisite of all luxuries, a bunch of fresh purple grapes with the bloom and mist of their delicious ripeness upon them. Macarius hated the thought of taking them for himself. He preferred that another should enjoy the boon and handed it to one of the brothers. But the same motive was strong in him, and he gave it to another. But again, this other preferred the enjoyment of a companion to his own. And so, in the absolute unselfishness of that little community, the untouched tempting grapes, which would have been so cool and so refreshing in the burning day, were handed one to another, none wishing to keep what would be pleasant to his fellow, till at last they were handed back to Macarius again. Unselfishness, you see, had become as completely the law of that little brotherhood as selfishness is the law of the common world. Oh, how infinitely lovelier 
is the spectacle presented by these saints of God and their love for one another than is daily presented in this hard modern life. Close quote. The love of Christ knew no boundaries and had no conditions, was and is offered to any and all who seek to experience its soothing, healing effects. Now, this is very special and very personal. In, the, in October of 1990, our neighbor's daughter was involved in a serious automobile accident returning home from college. I was bishop at the time and received a phone call about midnight from Kim's father, Ralph Johnson, who is here today, asking if I could go to the LDS hospital in Salt Lake City and be with her as they were stranded in California, where they had driven that week, unable to get a flight to Salt Lake City until the next morning. Brother and Sister Johnson wanted someone to be with their daughter whose condition was critical. My wife Sherry and I and my first counselor Dick Beeson traveled to the hospital. Kim was in a coma. Her uncle and boyfriend were already present. All during the night we prayed and we waited and we hoped and we cried. Sometime during the night, feeling myself very bad, I decided to walk down to the area where Kim lay unconscious. It must have been 3 or 4 a.m. Much to my surprise, I found my wife Sherry sitting by Kim, talking to her and stroking her arm softly. I said something to Sherry about coming back to the waiting room and with me, to which she responded. In a while, someone who knows her and loves her should be with her. This is where Ralph and Nancy would be if they were here. She needs a mom. I will stay with her. I do not know if Kim knew of my wife's care, but I hope she felt it even if she could not see it. Sherry gave Kim pure love unfeigned in the middle of the night as she lay dying. Now I learned something from that. I learned that night that love is most pure when there is no consideration of a response from the person that receives it. That is the pure love we should offer to each other in large quantities. Everyone loves to be loved. It feels good. I believe we respond to it as we do because it was so much a part of our pre-mortal lives. It must have filled the celestial courts on high as we lived in the presence of our heavenly parents. As we experience such love here, it carries with it some soft and subtle memories of the pure love we basked in with him in our heavenly home. There is always the question of how these Correct principles related to Christ-like love are actually to become a part of our lives in a day-to-day fashion. I've thought about that a great deal because if we cannot get from principle to practice, then our daily lives remain unaffected. I once fashioned a concept called the blue line that I would like to share with you. The idea is that we draw a blue line around any group of individuals with whom we choose to work. A family a ward, a class we teach, a priesthood quorum, a relief society, a scout troop, a social group, literally any group. For example, you take a written list of students in your five-year-old primary class and draw a blue line around it. The blue line becomes a symbol. What happens when a child crosses the blue line and enters your class? What happens when a person crosses the blue line and enters your ward? What do we offer to anyone who crosses the blue line and enters our group? What do they come seeking? What will we give to all who join us? I've always felt that we all have certain basic needs or desires that seem to be eternally a part of us. The desire to be loved, to feel important, to feel valuable, to feel worthwhile, to feel significant, to mention a few. 
As a person crosses the blue line to enter your Relief Society, for example, you make a commitment to help them in every way to feel loved, significant, worthwhile, important, and valuable. You make plans and decisions to do all you can to help all who have crossed the blue line and entered your group to experience those vital feelings of significance, worth, value, importance, and love. It will bring a sense of spiritual aliveness to all with whom you work and serve. At the conclusion of the movie The Chosen, patterned after the book by Haim Potak, we hear the following story. Quote, There is a story in the Talmud about a king who had a son who had gone astray from his father. The son was told, Return to your father. The son said, I cannot. Then his father sent a messenger to say, Return as far as you can, and I will come to you the rest of the way. Oh, how I wish we would not wait for each other to come asking for love, for the nourishment of charity. Go to each other. Seek to love one another. If such is the heart of the community of saints, the world will throng to us to share it with us. So let's listen more. Try to understand each other a little more, hold hands more, put ourselves second a little more, comfort more. So what am I hoping for? I would like to hear us say the words, I love you more. I would like to see more of us in family home evenings where it is a little less of a class, but it is a place where we sit with our arms around each other and talk of the Savior's gospel, expressing love for one another. I hope for more parents taking walks with their children hand in hand, more games where we laugh and play together because we like each other, more love letters. More of us kneeling together in prayer, expressing our love for our Heavenly Father and for each other. Less judgment and more understanding ears for one another. Charity in the community of saints. May it be the heart of who we are as his servants. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Showing Charity Towards All with thoughts from Claiborne Carson and James D. MacArthur. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.